None of what you're about to hear is inspired by a true story. It is a true story. My name is Reed Domingo, and I robbed 12 banks in San Diego, California. I didn't hurt anyone. I never wanted to. I did it all for love and to pay for the devastating debts racked up from the costs of IVF needed for my wife and I to start a family. Let me tell you about how I reached such a point in my life, the wonderful things that happened to me before, during, and after the robberies, and how I found redemption by helping others during my time in prison. So here then, in my own words and in my own voice, is my story. Episode 6. Hi there. Yeah, we were doing as much as we could. What it is is how many eggs you get out, and then it's what fertilizes, because then it starts, okay, you got so many. Okay, now you got viable. Now so many divided. Now when they, you go down, so it's it's a day-by-day day thing, like, oh, and then it's like, okay, this is what we have viable to transfer. At that time, pretty much... They were, I mean, at the beginning, they were putting in like 10, you know, way back then because they didn't have the rates that they have now. If now, they would take because everything's changed with IVF. But at that time, it was a lot. That's why we were getting a lot of multiple births. So we were always afraid of that, like, oh, no, maybe we shouldn't put a lot in because I was supposed to be normal then. They were just bypassing the tube. That's all they were doing. No, we'll just bypass the tube. Yep, this will work. Oh, no, it's working. It's not working. It's not working. It's not working. As the costs for IVF kept mounting, I knew I had to find more cash to put into it. One of the first things I could put my hands on to raise funds were my race bikes. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but I used to be the American Road Racing Association 600 Superbike Champion. What a time that was. Maybe we'll revisit that another time. In pursuit of that, I actually had five race bikes of different specifications, all top of the range, all with the best parts. I think the thing that was really sad for me about my race bikes was that I'd taken thousands of dollars to create these bikes, and now, on the used market, I'd be lucky to get pennies on the dollar. But with everything going on, I'll take it. One particular bike, I think I'd put $25,000 into it. I think I got 5000 out of it. All of my spare parts I sold to, all of the ancillaries. The only thing I kept with the helmets. I had about nine different helmets. Three of them were also Patrice's. They were special to me. Maybe the only thing that I could keep to remind me of that time. I remember speaking to my father one day, and obviously I brought up the fact that Patrice and I were still doing everything we could to try and have a child. It was kind of sad for me because my father never seemed to be part of it for me. When I asked him about it, I think he felt, if you want to have a child, that's up to you but he didn't really see it where it was anything that he should be involved in. I think the saddest thing of all with regards to trying to raise funds was that I asked Patrice if we could just pawn her wedding ring set and her Rolex. Always the dutiful wife, she gave them to me. I pawned them, but I knew, so I'll get them back. I suppose it's kind of crazy now, but I remember I robbed a bank, and with some of the proceeds, 
actually went and redeemed her wedding set and her Rolex. And I remember one evening, I said, look, why don't we go out to dinner? I know it's not something we normally do, especially not in these times, but let's do something special. And I remember going to a really nice steak restaurant in San Diego. We'd ordered our food, and while we were sitting there just having a drink, I reached from under the table, and I just slid a little box over to her. I think she was curious. Oh, oh, what's this? But the look on her face when she opened that box and saw her wedding set and her Rolex was priceless for me. I knew she was happy. But again, that happiness was temporary. It wasn't long before I needed to ask her, could I get those items back again? Patrice never gave me a hard time. I actually remember seeing her take the rings off her finger, take the watch off her wrist, and place them in my hand. It seemed like every three months would just fly by, and it was time to either pay the interest or redeem the pawn. The interest rate was extortionate, but when you're desperate, you'll make a deal with the devil. Unfortunately, a time did finally come where I was unable to either pay the interest or redeem it, and finally, Patrice's wedding set and Rolex were gone. This might come as a bit of a surprise, but living in Southern California, a lot of people smoke pot. You what? Yeah, including me. Now, I'd never smoked anything growing up in the UK. For me, two or three pints on a weekend was kind of my limit. It wasn't until I was in the United States that I had my first experience. Giggling like a little <laughs> schoolgirl. But I think what interested me the most was when you smoked some pot, your food tasted amazing. You could have a cream cracker with a piece of cheese on it, and it tasted like the finest Chateaubriand. I remember sitting with Patrice at the kitchen table one morning, and we were going over all of the costs for IVF. They were getting astronomical, and I couldn't really see how we were ever going to surmount these. So I just came out with it. Patrice, would you have any objections if we actually grew some pot here? Where? Where are we going to grow pot? Yeah, we had a six-and-a-half-acre piece of land with 600 orange trees on it, but Patrice's biggest concern was, well, you're just going to do it in the middle of the orange trees. Although that was a possibility, where we lived in Valley Center, quite often in the daytime, you would see the Sheriff's County helicopters flying over above. Actually, that was one of the things they were looking for, was illegal groves, also for illegal aliens. No, why don't we do a hydroponic setup? A what? Hydroponic? What's that? where we grow the marijuana in water, but we do it indoors. How are you going to do it indoors? With lights. Lights, special lights. Metal halide, high-pressure sodium lights. Well, where are we going to do it? In the garage. Oh, yeah, right. We'll just move the car to the side and you can just do it in there. No. You see that pull-down staircase in the ceiling of the garage? Do you know what's above there? A floor space exactly the same size as the garage. Yeah, we lose a little bit on the edges where the roof comes down, but I know if I fit it out, that would be more than enough space to make a grow room. <sighs> Whatever. Do you really know what you're doing? I've seen some videos. I think I could. What about the hydroponic part? So, you know, I've worked at the lab. How many summers have I been at the lab? I think I can do this. But I, I swear, once we've got it up and running, the running costs will be negligible and we can really get into a regular revenue cycle. 
possibly making money at least monthly, possibly sooner. I'll try and split the cycles. Oh, God. It sounds like a lot. Uh, I, I know, I know, but I think I can do it. All right, go ahead. I think the biggest issue that Patrice had with it was the ethical part. Are we going to be drug dealers? But as I said earlier, everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people in Southern California smoke pot. From laborers to retail, professional to law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, that's right, law enforcement. So everybody smoked pot. It was casual. Neither Patrice or I, because of our fitness background, were really heavy drinkers. The odd beer here or there. So smoking weed was actually what we kind of preferred to do to relax. So now that I knew I had Patrice on my side, okay, what do we need to do? The hydroponic equipment I could get locally, not in Valley Center where we lived, but Escondido, 15 miles away. There was a hydroponic store. With regards to the seeds, I'm from Europe. That's the place to get seeds. I contacted one of the biggest suppliers in Holland. Their stuff was renowned. Every year at the Cannabis Cup, they either won it or were runner-up. Those are the seeds we're going to get. I contacted them. They were extremely helpful. They said they would send it out to me. I knew that would probably take a couple of weeks. So in the meantime, let's get the hydroponics setup going. There was a local hydroponics store in Escondido. I remember going there and standing outside. You know, it was very reminiscent of the first time I ever went into an adult bookstore in Soho back in my teenage years in London. I was standing outside trying to build up the courage to go in. Are people watching me? Are the cops watching us? <laughs> I went in. There it was, shelves and shelves of plastic tubing, buckets, lights, fans, a myriad of stuff. I didn't have a clue. Can I help you? Here was a guy. His name was Billy. Billy and I were going to become good friends. Now that I'd met Billy, I realized I couldn't really say what I was there to do. So the euphemism that I used was growing tomatoes. Yes, big, fat, juicy tomatoes. Billy knew exactly what I was talking about. Billy asked me, So, sir, you know, how big is the area that you need to cover? Um, uh, about 800 square feet. Oh, okay, so for that, you could probably have a 64-pot setup. Oh, okay, yeah, whatever, whatever you say, Billy. 64-pot, what does that mean? He explained it to me. Wow. Again, for me at this time, I really wasn't sure what he meant, but I could tell he knew exactly what he was talking about. He explained what lights I needed, and in a nutshell, he told me you'd be looking at about three months for one complete cycle for your tomatoes. Oh, does that mean I just get tomatoes every three months? And he goes, no, no, if you stagger it, how about getting fresh tomatoes every two weeks? Two weeks? Oh, and then I could uh, sell my tomatoes and get paid? Paid every two weeks. Oh, you've got my interest now, Billy. <laughs> Before I could actually set up the hydroponic system, I had to fit out above the garage. I contracted a local handyman, who was also an ex-contractor, invited him over to the house, pulled down the staircase, and we went upstairs. 
It was just bare rafters on the floor and the open tile work above. What are you going to do up here? Oh, I'm thinking about making it into an office, possibly a you know playroom, or maybe just somewhere where somebody could sleep. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we're going to have to put down the floor. Uh, do you want to run electrically in here? Well, of course, please. What about uh, plumbing? Uh, yeah, just a water line for now. I, I'm not actually thinking we need to put a, a bathroom or anything in there, but yes. And, uh, and then obviously drywall, the ceiling. We should probably put insulation in here. Moderate those temperatures. Oh, perfect. Great idea. He stood there. You know he knew what he was doing. In five seconds, he was able to tell me what the dimensions were of that space upstairs. You're going to need 46 8x4s and 32 sheets of drywall. Wow, he knew what he was talking about. All right, can you get all of that? Yes, I can. Do you have anybody to help us? Uh, how many do you need? Three. Okay, I'll sort that out. He told me to get everything ready and in place in two days. Fortuitously for us, at the end of the road, there was a little convenience store. Every morning, around 5 to 6 a.m., there would be about 60 Mexican workers standing on the corner looking for a job. One after the other, pickup trucks would pull up and somebody would shout out, I need five! Immediately, five guys, elbowing each other out the way, would run to the pickup truck, jump in the back, and off they go. Those unlucky ones, wait your turn. But don't worry, there are several pickup trucks coming. I remember going there with my little pickup truck. I need three! Immediately, three guys came rushing over, jumped into the back of the pickup, and I took them to the house. One thing I will say, you can never question these guys' work ethic. They worked hard. Everybody knew that the going rate was $10 an hour, but you got your money's worth out of them. I remember it was kind of funny, when we went to do it, not only did I pay them their $10 an hour, but when it was time for lunch, I went out to the burger joint. I got burgers and fries and Cokes for everybody. And at the end of the day, not only did they get their money, but everybody got a case of beer. Two days later, five o'clock in the morning, I went to the store to pick up my guys. Three guys jumped in the back and we went back up to the house. The contractor was already there, and as arranged, the hardware store had dropped off the 8x4s, drywall, and insulation. As the guys jumped out of the truck, the contractor already marshaled them. All right, I need two guys upstairs. Two guys dutifully pulled down the staircase, and up they went. The third waited at the bottom, and like a well-oiled machine, we were slowly passing the 8x4s, drywall and insulation up the stairs. Before we knew it, everything was up there. Beginning in the far corner, he'd already started to lay the floor. He had one of those pneumatic nail guns, I don't know, air-powered or whatever it was, but all I could hear was bang, 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 bang. He was laying an 8x4, nailing it to the rafter. Next, next one over. Boom, boom, boom. What a performance. This guy knew what he was doing. No word of a lie. Within an hour, we had the whole floor laid. What do you think? I went and stepped on it. It was good, but I could feel a little give. But more than anything, I knew 
this floor had to be solid. The garage wasn't just used to park my cars and store my race bikes. There was a pool table, table tennis table, Patrice's tanning bed. I had video games around the outside of the garage. It was used all the time. I entertained my friends in that garage. I entertained my father-in-law in that garage. I knew that it had to be soundproof. I could not have any sound being transmitted into that garage. Uh, could we do a little bit more? I knew you'd say that. He took the 8 by 4s turned them through 90 degrees, and started laying a second floor. Another hour later, we had a floor that you could play basketball on. It was phenomenal. We were halfway there. Back at the garage, all we had to do now was lay the drywall on the roof with the insulation. These guys worked so hard, I couldn't have been prouder of them. And again, before we knew it, we'd laid the drywall, put in the insulation, and taped it all up. Everything was now done. The hydroponic setup was a go. Time to find Billy. I went back to the store, told Billy, yeah, your 64-part setup sounds great. He totted everything up and started loading everything to the back of my pickup. I had the parts. I had the rock wall, I had the lights, the reservoir tank for the water, the timers, and the pumps. Once I got back to the house, I brought everything upstairs and laid it out on the ground. Now, all of those summers I spent at the lab working with my dad were about to come to fruition. My dad always instilled in me to work with clinical precision. Now I understood why. I set up the reservoir as Billy instructed me. It was a 200-gallon barrel, full of water and nutrients. In the barrel was a pump. That pump fed those 16 pots. The way it works is really pretty simple. And now, full of you fans of the Sea of Green, why don't we have a little horticultural lesson? There is no soil when you grow in hydroponics. When you first get your seed, you need to germinate a half-inch cube piece of top rock, of the rock wool and pop your seed twice a day water with will your pump out of the reservoir, filling you can see, the Once you've got this set up, it runs now, by itself. It wonderful sunlight, After about 24 week, hours a day. Your plants will be about will three or four rapid. inches tall. Another week later, how about so now? Well, you've got your main plant, your jack one. Actually, that's all well and good for the plants. They this is a good point, because it did come back. By the time I had all four setups running, I had 4,000 watts of high-pressure sodium lights generating an immense amount of heat. Again, I was able to draw on my experiences back at the lab in Wales. We used to have centrifuges. They generated a lot of heat themselves. We had a room with about half a dozen centrifuges in there. So what my father did was he installed an extractor fan, taking the heat that was built up in that room and passing it out into the open air. I followed his suit. I installed two extractors that would take the ambient air from the grow room, pass it through the lights, and then up into the ceiling of the grow room. 
This is where the flooring that we installed earlier came into its own. With those additional extractor fans, they did give off a bit of a hum. But with that solid basketball floor that we had laid, when you were standing in the garage, you heard nothing. <laughs> in spite of everything, you'd think I had it set up, but I didn't. I made mistakes, costly mistakes. The water supply in Valley Center would be considered hard. As a consequence, when we were showering, Patrice noticed that no matter how much soap you used, it never really lathered up well. A friend of ours suggested, oh, why don't you install a soft water system in your house? What a great idea. We purchased the necessary equipment and had it installed. Getting in the shower was lovely. A drop of soap and you were covered in bubbles. One thing I forgot was that my grove was supplied by the house system. The next morning, I looked at my plants and I noticed some slight browning on the edges of the leaves. I thought, oh, maybe I'm adding a little bit too much nutrient. But the next day, all of the plants had turned brown. They were dying. I contacted Billy in a panic. What have I done? Equally, he said, did you turn up the nutrient? No. I was unaware of the fact that to obtain soft water, you have to introduce salt. Understandably, plants don't like salt. Within 24 hours, I had lost everything in the flowering chamber. I had to start all over again from my clones. Thousands of dollars worth down the drain. That aside... Those initial runs were phenomenal. I remember having some bud as thick as my forearm. It was amazing. With the summertime coming, it was barbecue time. I remember opening the garage doors in the daytime, having my friends over. My father-in-law, Carl. We'd be downstairs playing table tennis, playing pool... Morgan had some of his friends over. They were playing basketball out on the driveway. All the time, none of them realized what was going on right above their head. When you manage a grove, it pretty much runs itself. Genuinely, I only had to spend about 15 minutes a day tending to the plants, just making sure that the timers were set right and that I had to move the lights up accordingly in the flowering chamber. However, every two weeks, when it was time to harvest, you had to put in some work. And what was that? It was a solid two days. I had to hack down the plants in that station, cut off the bud, and sit there on a little rolling stool and trim. I used to wear rubber gloves, otherwise, by the end, your hands were just covered in resin. So you would trim, 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 then hang your little buds on a washing line up there in the flowering chamber, nice and warm, and flush out the whole system, resupply it with fresh water, and reset your nutrients. So 15 minutes every day, and two days every fortnight. Not bad hours, and a very good return. I noticed one day Patrice was a bit sad, and I wondered why. She said, you know what, I've been thinking, why don't we get the grove out of the house? 
Okay. Um, whatever you want, sweetheart. With a little bit of searching, I was able to find a cheap rental in the local area that was perfect. An isolated house and turned one bedroom into the flowering room and one into the vegetative room. In the middle of the night, with Steve's help, we loaded everything into the back of a truck and under the cover of darkness, we transferred the whole grove from our house to our little rental. There was absolutely something prophetic about that because within a few months, the FBI came knocking on my door. And believe it or not, in the American judicial system, I would have got more time for growing the weed than robbing banks. After five failed attempts of IVF in San Diego, Patrice and I were now looking at other options. We'd heard of a clinic up in Los Angeles run by a Dr. Shear. His numbers were pretty incredible. The only issue for us was location. It's a two and a half hour journey from San Diego to Los Angeles. But if that's what it would take for us to have a success, we would do anything. We went up, met with Dr. Shear, and we'd got the sense that he really cared about what we were doing. He looked at all of our information that we had brought and equally felt that we were prime candidates for IVF. All right, let's do it. His costs were high, but I needed to get a success. Dr. Shear felt very confident in his abilities and said, yep, let's do it. Unfortunately, the first attempt was not that successful. What should we do differently? Patrice and I and Dr. Shear, we went meticulously over every aspect of the first cycle, and he brought up the fact that maybe there was an autoimmune aspect that we hadn't considered. Maybe Patrice's body was rejecting the embryo. So to address that, he said we would use an immunosuppressant. The physicians could harvest anywhere from 8 to as many as 15, 20 eggs in one cycle. For whatever reason, even though Patrice was on far higher medication than they'd ever administered before, she was only averaging between 6 to 8. Fortuitously, we had good fertilization rates, around 80%, so we were normally having somewhere in the region of 5 to 8 embryos to transfer. We would take the best of those, and that would be what we would put in. The second attempt, unfortunately, by the time it came for the embryo transfer, we had four. It's better than nothing, so let's go. They did the embryo transfer, and the next day we had to come for the IVIG immunosuppressant. Unfortunately, again, we were not successful. This is it. We have one attempt left. You know that phrase, it's now or never. So finally getting towards the end that we were exhausted, mentally exhausted, financially tapped out, uh, felt devastated, like there's just no hope. We said, okay, we can do it just this last time. That's it. With everything invested, we realized we were spending less time working and more time driving to L.A. This is not going to end well for the business. The writing was on the wall. We should have seen what was going to come next. Revenues were dropping and the debts were spiraling. We now realized that this really was our last chance. It really was going to be now or never. On the day that we went up to harvest Patrice's eggs, it was a bit of a disappointment, as there were only four. With our fertilization, we ended up having three embryos. 
We now had to come back in 48 hours for the transfer. Things were not looking good. I distinctly remember going up on that day for the transfer, coming into Dr. Shear's office and him coming in and telling us, we have two embryos to transfer. I could just feel all of the air going out of the room. We had one big embryo, which was around eight cells, an excellent embryo. The other, barely two. I looked at Patrice and I said, why are we even bothering? Let's just go home. We felt so dejected. This is the worst run that we'd ever had. Maybe we should just keep these embryos, freeze them, and save them up for the next cycle. What do you mean next cycle? Where are we going to get that money from? What are we going to do? We drove two and a half hours to get here. We may as well see it through. Yeah, okay, why not? Talk about positivity. There was none of that. In that wonderfully quiet room that they actually do the embryo transfer in, they had some soft music playing, Patrice was positioned, and Dr. Shear transferred the two embryos that we had. We sat there for the next half an hour in complete silence. I think both of us were just so dejected, there was really nothing to say. Even the drive home to San Diego was so uneventful. Why do we even bother? We said, okay, we can do it just this last time, that's it. And then we're just going to have to give it up. I don't, you know, it was just so, 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 so sad, so sad. So we went up there, and Reed was always, um, I was more pessimistic. He was he was always very like, no, this, yeah, yeah. He was really, really good with that. Very supportive, very positive. Uh, really helped me through uh, that time because it was emotionally because of them. Huge amount of horror. It was just incredible. I wasn't even me anymore. It was just so, so hard emotionally. Um, so if we finally get down to this, we just know this is it. This is done. We just can't. We can't continue. We just can't. Uh, we finally get up there and they go, okay, to transfer, we have two embryos. And they showed us a picture of the embryo. So he had to go all the way up there, showed us the picture of the embryo. And we had, I can't describe it in any way, but um, when you see them, they're different sizes. And so this time we go in and they show us, you got two embryos and we're like, oh, because that's like, Oh, impossible right there. And they go, we got one really good one. And that thing, all the other embryos were never the size. We have one, it was huge, about the size of a tangerine. I mean, smaller, but a small tangerine, but whoa. And they go, that's really good embryo. And then we got this little guy. Well, generally, if they're like that, a little tiny guy like a grape and a tangerine, you're like, hmm. And that guy most likely is not going to continue dividing. So pretty much we're putting back in one embryo. You don't get pregnant with one embryo. You just really, I mean, they just didn't really, that didn't happen. And everything that we've been going through, we've been putting back in, you know, four, five, six, right? So there was something that was happening in the implantation that it wasn't implanting into the uterus. We don't know why, they didn't know why, but that's what it was. So they said, go to lunch, think about it. You're already paid to this point, but if we do the transfer, then it's going to be, then you owe us this X amount of money. So here we have this, the worst time ever, the biggest one embryo that we've ever had, 
but the worst time ever, one really pretty much going back in, they're gonna throw the other one in because they have nothing to do with it. And, but then you're gonna need to pay this other chunk of money. I don't know what it was, probably a couple thousand dollars for us to do the transfer. And we're thinking, oh. so I remember we went to lunch and we were just like, like just gutted, gutted, just felt like there was just no hope and uh, why is this happening? And, you know, with all of our love and we just thought, well, maybe it's just about this. Maybe it isn't about having, you know, maybe we're just not meant to be. We've tried everything. We've exhausted everything. We just, we don't know. And so I just, you know, Reed was deflated and I just said, you know what, we're here. Let's just do it. It was, you know, still that money, but I just thought, never know, right? Could happen. He's like, oh, I don't know. First time he's ever been kind of like, uh, you know, it's just the odds are nothing. And I'm like, let's just do it. We did it. And it worked. And all of a sudden we were like, whoa. It was like, yep, yeah, no, got it. No, it's viable. No, it's working. We couldn't believe it. So then they did this thing called IVIG where they they didn't know what was happening, why it was an implanting. So in their mind, we're going to stop any immune response that you have just in case your body is attacking it because that's what can happen in IVF. Your body could be attacking it and breaking it down as a foreign substance. So we're going to give you an IVIG. We're going to stop your immune system from attacking anything, and we're going to do this. And I thought, very expensive too. The phone rings. Oh, it's Dr. Shear's office. Do you want to take it? Go ahead, Patrice, you do it. No. I look at Patrice's face. She said, I'm pregnant. Holy smokes. <laughs> no, yes, pregnant. We couldn't believe it. How can this be? Our worst attempt, and we have a success. Oh, we were so happy. Could not believe it. The nurse at the office said, you'll need to come in in a week's time. Dr. Shear wants to do another round of the immunosuppressant. Whatever you want, we said. Oh, we were on cloud nine. We timed it that we would go from Dr. Shear's office to LAX, where I would put Patrice on a plane for her to go and enroll her daughter Amber in school. Dr. Shear was not too keen on Patrice flying that soon after the embryo transfer. But needs must, she had to go to England. I remember sitting in that little room where they do the IVIG. There was another couple in there. I couldn't see the wife or partner. She was behind another curtain. But I could see the other gentleman. I looked over to him. He looked familiar. Oh, yeah. He was a multi-time middleweight champion of the world of boxing. Interesting. Just gives you an idea of Dr. Shear's clientele. Once the IVIG was administered, I took Patrice to LAX, and off she went to England. Uh, it was for my other daughter, so I had to fly. So they ramped it up, and they said, okay, you should be okay. We're going to, you know condense them all together and just give them to you. Oh, okay, yeah. So I do that, right? So I get on the plane, go, 
oh, I'm feeling bad. Something is wrong. I feel really weird. So I'm, as I'm flying, I get to England and I'm having this reaction and I felt terrible the whole time I was there, really bad. I'm thinking, oh my God, it must, you know, maybe it's IVIG, I don't know, you know, but they didn't know. They've never really done it that much before and had to do it right before someone's getting on a plane. And then the thing with traveling and altitude and then different time frame. So when I was there, uh, I didn't feel good the whole time. So I fly back and then um, basically I thought I had a miscarriage on the plane. It was so, it was so awful. And I thought, here's a chance, our only chance. And yeah, it just, that was it. So they had to take me out in ambulance. I was bleeding and it was just terrible. I was driving to LAX to pick up Patrice. It was a wonderful day and I was so looking forward to seeing my wife. My phone rings. Hi, this is Reed. It was the airline company. Oh, hi, what's going on? Your wife has suffered a miscarriage. Talk about nearly driving into a tree. I kept quiet. Tell me what I need to know. They informed me that an ambulance was on standby to meet the aeroplane on the runway and take Patrice to a hospital in Century City. Instead of going to the airport, I was now going to go to the hospital and meet her there. I was devastated. I drove to Century City, parked up, found which room Patrice was in. So basically, they just said that she lost it. So, it's actually good news with this because I didn't. So then he finally came in and we didn't really talk about it, so we drove home. And um, so I was up in L.A. We drove home, devastated, gutted. Thought, I mean, maybe I should have never taken the trip. Whatever, we didn't know what it was. So um, I contacted the um, IVF center that was in San Diego that we went to, and the doctor up in L.A. said, go there, let's do an ultrasound. doesn't mean the baby's gone. I'm like, there is no way I know how much I passed, and absolutely not. There's, there's just no way anything viable is left. But he said, no, we have to make sure, and if that's the case, you know, you have to have a DNC. So we had that night, and the next morning we went in, and just we were just didn't even really talk too much. We were so devastated. Went in, and they were like, "There's a heartbeat, still in there." We're like, "What? You got to be joking!" And they're like, "No, still in there. Yeah, no, she's fine. Dap's fine." We were like, "Oh my gosh, like miracle! This is a miracle child, miracle." I mean, they all knew. Everybody was hoping for us, and I said, "If you tell me." to go home and to lay in bed for the next nine months, uh, I will. You just tell me. Oh, no, 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 you're fine. No. So the first guy, he retired, and then his partner took over. But I knew him because he delivered my other son for me. So then I started having some problems, and I knew it. I felt it was weird. I just felt like fluid coming out. And they're just like, oh, you're older, even though I was 40. But it's probably, you know, your bladder. And I'm like, I don't have bladder problems. I've never had a bladder problem with any of my pregnancies. I, I don't have bladder. Oh, you're just older. You don't know. It's just different. It's your fourth pregnancy. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, but I don't think so. It doesn't feel that way. 
So I kept calling him, calling him, and I taught really light classes. And I'm like, I don't feel really good, you know. So at this time, it was about three and a half months. So if you could make it that far, then, you know, you're going to be doing much better. So I said, I don't know. And I thought, no, I'm just going to rest. He's like, you don't need to. You don't need to. And so I called him like on a Friday and I'm like, yeah, I'm having a lot more of that. It's weird. I, I just feel funny. Something's funny. It felt really weird. And then I just told Reed, I said, I got to call him. So um, they brought me in. I think maybe it was a Monday. I made it to Monday. I went in. They looked at me and they go, oh, yeah, um, yeah, you need to go. And they just got real serious, walked in. You need to go to this doctor. He's down at Mercy Hospital. Uh, it's in with Scripps La Jolla, but he's a he's a specialty doctor, and you need to go see him right now. Like, what's going on? He goes, Yeah, I don't. You know, things just don't look right. I'm like, You. I was so upset. I'm like, I told you know. I was thinking, Gosh, dang it, you know, I told you. So we go down there. We don't really know still what's going on. We see we see the doctor, and he's like, Yeah, uh, basically, you're already dilated and her head is we knew at that time it was a good little girl he goes she's already coming out so you're getting ready to give birth to her and she's we haven't I think they had one child that survived at that time premature it's way I mean you're looking at brain damage and this damage I'm like you have friggin' got to be joking like everything that we've been through like this is this is terrible so um so he just, it was his energy, it was something about him, and he said, you know what? And he walked up to me, and he, he went like this, and I was sitting down in a chair, well, actually in a wheelchair, and I was sitting down, and he, he takes his fingers, and he starts sprinkling, like he's sprinkling stuff over my head, and he goes, I'm going to sprinkle, he goes, I'm sprinkling magic um, dust over you, or magic powder, and he goes, I'm sprinkling this over you, and we're, we're going to take care of this. And it was the weirdest thing for a doctor. I mean, this guy, and I'm like, I felt like, I just thought, oh my gosh, it was so weird. It was the weirdest thing. I thought, I had to be imagining that. But, yeah. I remember going in and seeing Sue, our regular technician. Hi, how are you guys doing? Uh, okay, you know, hopefully we'll be doing a lot better in about 10 minutes. Patrice was in the reclined position. They got that magic wand ready. Okay, let's see what we've got. <laughs> ah, there we go. There's the heartbeat. Oh my gosh. We're on. We are still in the game. Oh, what a wonderful sight to see the heartbeat of our child. We were so ecstatic leaving the clinic that I said, you know what? Let's go buy some furniture. I think it must have been about four weeks later when again we went to our local clinic for a scan our favorite technician, Sue, came in, bubbly as ever. Doing her work, she suddenly said, Oh, do you want to know the sex of your baby? Obviously, we already knew, but we said, Yeah, why not? Sue flicked round the monitor, and there, for everyone to see, we were having a little girl. Things had now progressed to the point that we no longer needed to be under the care of an IVF clinic and we could move to Patrice's previous neonatal physician. You're really going to like this guy, Patrice said. He's cool, he rides a bike, it's a Harley. I'm a more of a sport bike guy, but you're really going to like him. He seemed fine, salt and pepper hair, big biker boots, all of that stuff. 
gave Patrice an examination, and then just happened to mention something. Oh, hmm, see a slight beaking. Beaking? What's that, I asked. Oh, it's just a slight opening of the cervix. Should we be concerned? No, no, you're fine. I'll see you guys in six weeks. Okay. You're the physician. We'll follow your advice. Six weeks later, we came for our follow-up appointment. He came in, few pleasantries. He did his examination. All of a sudden, without saying anything, he left the office. Oh, wonder what that's about, I asked Patrice. Ten minutes later, he came in, sat down. He told us, you need to go down to Mission Valley Memorial Hospital and see a specific physician called Dr. Moore. So he goes, you need to go over emergency right away. Uh, We're going to see if we can do a cerclage where they sew up the uterus. Apparently, that slight beaking of the cervix had progressed to the point now that an intervention was needed. Do you need us to provide an ambulance? No, no, I said I can take Patrice. I've got my car right here. We flew towards Memorial Hospital. I was pushing that car, maybe pushing it too hard. All of a sudden, a red light came up on the dash. The temperature was rising to the limit. Soon thereafter, there was a knocking sound, and I realized this car wasn't going to be going any further. We were actually on Miramar Road. I know that road well. I pulled the car to the side and told Patrice, stay here. I jumped out and looked to see where I was. Running down Miramar Road, I knew there was a car rental place somewhere along here. There it was, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I ran inside. I need to get a car. Good day, sir. You need a full-size, mid-size, any car. I know I might have sounded a bit rude, but time was of the essence. I pulled up my card and praying with everything I had, I hoped there'd be enough credit for me to secure this car. That's fine. Everything's gone through. Perfect. I've got a car and I left. 30 minutes after leaving Patrice, I was back. All right, sweetheart, get into this car. We switched cars into this rental car, continued our journey to Memorial Hospital. When we got there, they were waiting for us. They immediately wheeled Patrice into the operating theater, and I remained in the waiting room. After about 20 minutes, Dr. Moore came in and introduced himself to me. This is the situation, he explained. Patrice's cervix had opened up, and now the embryonic sac was actually in the vaginal canal. This baby is about to be delivered. It was 21 weeks, the absolute edge of medical technology at that point for sustaining a life of a child. What are our options? Preferably, Dr. Moore wanted to try and put the embryonic sac back into the uterus. In doing so, he knew there was a high probability that he would rupture the embryonic sac. If that was successful, we could possibly introduce a bacterial or viral infection into the uterus that would also result in a spontaneous delivery. If we had to deliver our child at this point, he explained to me that the chances of survival were probably about 10%. As such, everything depended on Dr. Moore being able to put the embryonic sac back. He left, 
and an hour later came back with a smile on his face. I did it, he said. It's back in there, and I've closed the cervix with a cyclage, basically a stitch, just to keep the cervix together. Now, he said, it truly is in the hands of God. Please take care of your wife. Ensure that she has bed rest for the next four months. And when I next see you, it will hopefully be to deliver your child. So he goes, go over emergency right away. Go over there, wheelchair transfer. Anyways, go right inside. Put me inside. They had to put me upside down in a bed where they put your head down and your feet are up in the air. And I had to be like that for a couple of days. That sucked, but I didn't care. Because they wanted to get the weight. They wanted her to, her head to back off the cervix because they were going to try to sew it. Anyways, long story short, chances of this working is going to be nil. Uh, if you make it to the point where we can do this, your claws, chances after we do that, um, because now bacteria have been introduced, there's going to be probably an infection. I mean, my chances were like 10%, 10%. And then when we do that, if you make it through that, there's another only 10% chance, but it doesn't get, the body's going to automatically abort it because now it's infected and da-da-da-da-da-da, through the whole thing. I made it through. They almost killed me when they were doing the surgery. That's a whole nother story. So that happened. Finally make it through there, and all I did for that whole week is pray. Pray, 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 pray. So I made it through. I, they didn't even think I would make it through that. And they're like, okay, we think this is going to work. We don't know, but it, it, it seems to be working. Discharge me. You're on bed rest. And you only can get up. So this was almost going on four months. You only can get out of bed to go pee. That's it. Go to the bathroom. But you're right back in the bed. So that's what I did. And I was happy to do that, very happy. I thought, oh, that's what, I mean, if I keep it, I went full term. They said, no, most likely you're going to deliver the baby early. Uh, you know, you have to come in because we got to take the claws out. But I went full term, full term, healthy pregnancy, weirdest thing ever. Don't even ask me why all that stuff happened. At this point, with our debt out of control and all of our credit options maxed out, we had no choice but to sell Gourmet Express, a wonderful little company that we started in our living room. But we needed those funds to pay for Dr. Shear and our last chance at doing IVF. It was now time for our little girl to enter this world. What a glorious day this was going to be. It was only up from here. The years of trying and the $250,000 of debt that we had built up were finally going to fade into the background. Within a week of bringing our beautiful little girl, Angelique, back to our house, Patrice knew that something wasn't right. We were getting ready for bed, and I remember Patrice looking at me and saying, I'm not feeling that good. Immediately she had my attention. What do you mean, sweetheart? It's my heart. My heart's really racing. What do you need me to do? I know she didn't want to tell me this, but she said, can we go to emergency? Absolutely. And with that, we bundled up our little girl and headed off to the hospital. Once there, they hooked her up, took her blood pressure, and monitored her symptoms. Three hours later, with everything stable, they advised us that we could probably go home. I was so grateful that it was nothing more than that. 
Maybe just a little anxiety. But no big deal. We're going home now. Let's get some sleep. It must have been just a few days later, and then Patrice told me exactly the same thing. No problem, sweetheart. Let's go. This time, I was hoping that they would find something. What's causing my wife to feel like this? Unfortunately, after three or four hours, they again said, we can't detect anything. Everything seems stable. Go ahead and go home. This happened a third time. By the time it was the fourth, we realized there was something else that we needed to investigate. Where should we start? If it's your heart, maybe we should go see a cardiologist. So we made an appointment and off we went. At the end of their investigation, they couldn't find anything. But they suggested putting Patrice on some beta blockers. Why? I asked. Why would you put her on that if you haven't found anything definitive? Hmm. I questioned that. Maybe we should get a second opinion. We made a further appointment with another physician, who unfortunately also could find nothing. We went to see an endocrinologist. They couldn't find anything. But my wife is telling me she's not feeling well. What's going on? Very quickly, having seen numerous physicians, the question arose, are these issues physiological or psychological? I know Patrice wasn't happy. She wouldn't do this for nothing. We had everything to be happy about. We finally had our child, a wonderful little girl. But should all of this cost me my wife? To me, from my layman perspective, it had to be physiological. Patrice was an athlete. I'd never met somebody in such good shape. And for my wife to be telling me that she didn't have the energy to get out of bed in the morning, I knew that there was something up. What's going wrong? With everything that Patrice was telling me, this lethargy was definitely coming from somewhere. Eventually, a friend said we should look into a thing called fibromyalgia. What the heck is that, I asked. It's a condition where the patient feels absolute lethargy. Their body aches and they have no ability to basically do anything. Yeah, that kind of sounds like what Patrice is going through. But how could that be? She was an athlete. Okay, you know what, Patrice? Let's do this. From here on, I just want you to focus on yourself and Angelique. Leave everything else to me. I don't want anything to interfere with you getting better. Sweetheart, please take care of yourself. The debts were absolutely crushing me. I could not get a moment's rest from it. And to compound that, now being excommunicated by my father, I knew it was all on me. And I knew I just had to get a job. I decided to become a car salesman. I've been in sales my whole life. I was working at a local import dealership and I showed up every day, shirt, tie and slacks. It wasn't a difficult job, but very soon I realized this really wasn't the thing for me. Plus, the money was very sporadic. The weight of everything was just bearing down on me. I felt like I was in a mental pressure cooker and that little hiss was just starting to build up. But I knew at some point it was all going to explode. Hello, HR. Oh, hi. Yeah, this is Johnson. I'm sending inmate 82897-198 Domingo to education 
and out of laundry. 